0: I recently saw a meme with an Xbox 360 with the red ring of death and it had a caption saying something along the lines of today's kids will never understand. That isn't anything unique, I often see posts and comments acting like stuff that wasn't very long ago was ancient history from a very long time ago. I mean we're currently in the ninth console generation, eight of which I personally owned and played over the years. So, I don't know, I guess I kind of find it funny when people look back, all the way back to two generations ago, like that was something from some historic era long past. Like, uh, you kids will have to go to a museum or read a history book to learn all about the way back in the day of Xbox 360. Unfortunately, I'm afraid that a large segment of the gaming community wasn't there 20, 30, 40 years ago and can't appreciate where we've been. I'm afraid that such a large percentage of today's gaming population is all about PlayStation and Xbox and grossly underestimate the historic significance of Nintendo and all of their major contributions to the entire industry. Now, of course, Nintendo didn't invent video gaming and didn't release the first video game console ever. Back in the 70s was the first generation of all these um, assorted game consoles that a few people I don't think ever really owned and then The second generation, you had namely the uh, Atari 2600, which is the first uh, major console, I think, with a lot of um, market penetration, a lot of units sold. I feel like usually when people talk about the early eras of uh, video games, that usually they go back to Atari 2600. Even though it technically wasn't the beginning, it technically wasn't the first generation, I think it was the first time it was actually big enough for people to remember it and have really participated in it. Nintendo's significance was after that in resurrecting the industry that Atari killed. See back in the days of the Atari 2600 video gaming was fairly popular at least with younger kids. Unfortunately parents didn't really dabble with it and didn't really know much of anything about it or care. The market becomes saturated with mediocre games and mom didn't know the difference between a good game and a mediocre game. So when buying birthday presents or Christmas presents for Little Billy, goes to the store and sees a bargain bin full of all these discounted, cheap, crappy games and figures well for the price of one game over there I could buy five of them over here, I'll just get Little Billy a bunch of these cheaper games. So all Billy ended up with was a whole bunch of really crappy games, and he lost interest in video gaming. Now multiply this by millions of disappointed Billies, and the industry ends up dying. After the demise of the video game industry, nobody was left with interest in video games, and all the experts said that there was no way that anybody would be able to resurrect the industry. It was a lost cause. Nintendo took a gamble on it though, and through a bunch of time and effort and commitment, determination. They made it work. Nintendo pulled off a miracle and resurrected an industry that was dead and beyond hope. Microsoft didn't do that. Sony didn't do that. Well, what about Sega? Sega was back here and... No, no, no. Sega didn't do it either. Nintendo did that. So if you play video games on Xbox or on a PlayStation or video games in any way, shape, or form, really, you owe Nintendo some thanks for that. All right, thanks Nintendo for there being video games in the first place. Now I'll move along to all the other awesome stuff the other guys have done. Well, no, hold up there, because Nintendo's contributions don't end with there being a video game industry today in the first place. There's quite a bit more that we owe Nintendo thanks for. There's even a lot of stuff that Nintendo dabbled with way ahead of its time before the technology was really there to be able to adequately do what they were trying to do. Stuff that we wouldn't really see again for many, many years or even decades later. But I'm going to start with something that you might not think of being something that goes back to Nintendo. Something that gamers use every day and don't even give any thought about, uh, take for granted. The next time you're playing with a video game via a video game controller, even if it's on a PlayStation or an Xbox, look down at that controller and look at what Nintendo gave you. Again, there were video game consoles before Nintendo introduced the Famicom slash NES, and those game consoles had different ways of you playing different kinds of controllers, paddles, and whatnot. Uh, prior to the NES, the most common one was the Atari 2600 joystick controller. It was basically a square box that had a long skinny joystick sticking up out of the middle of it, and a little red button in the corner. The controller for the Famicom slash Nintendo Entertainment System had a D-pad, a directional pad, on the left, an A and B button on the right, and a start and select button in the middle. This basic layout has been updated and expanded upon since then, but that same basic layout continues four decades later to this day and is an industry standard on like all controllers ever. The shape of controllers has changed, we've added extra buttons, we later added triggers, and we eventually added analog sticks. But that same basic layout remains to this day. The names of the buttons changes, it's not always start and select in the middle, and even the, the buttons aren't necessarily always A and B or, or letters in general. Uh, Sony decided to be retarded and use shapes, But that general layout of like your directional pad on the left and your buttons on the right and a couple menu type related buttons in the very middle remains to this day. I was going to deviate through some other topics chronologically and then later swing back around to controllers for further contributions down the road. But while we're already on controllers, let's go ahead and stick with that topic. So the NES had an A and B button. Sega dabbled with adding a third button, A, B, and C, but nobody subsequently really stuck with that um, setup that Sega come up with. When Nintendo introduced the Super Nintendo in the early 90s, they come with uh, an updated controller that uh, further uh, holds over to this day, even in the non-Nintendo systems. So with the Super Nintendo controller, you still had the D-pad on the left and an A and B button on the right, and start and select buttons in the middle. But, Nintendo added two more buttons on the right, an X and a Y button, and they had it in a basically a plus configuration, very similar to the plus shape of the D-pad, except instead of up, down, left, and right, it's A, B, X, and Y. And some people have deviated from that, or experimented with other layouts, since even Nintendo has. But if you look at an Xbox controller today, it has that exact same layout today. Sony don't call them ABX and Y. They call them stupid random shapes, but it's still the same layout to this day, decades later. The Super Nintendo controller also saw the introduction of uh, two shoulder buttons, uh, an L and R button, on the sides, the top sides of the controller. That again remains a staple of video game controllers decades later, even on controllers from Xbox and uh, for PlayStation. Now since then we've seen a lot of controllers add additional shoulder buttons, often more in the form of a trigger, so you often have two on the left and right, but this began with the L and R buttons on the uh, shoulders of the Super Nintendo controller. Now, following the Super Nintendo, when we went on to the next generation, which largely came down to the Sony PlayStation and Nintendo 64, we saw the addition of grips that remain to this day on controllers. Um, Now, the PlayStation did technically come out before the Nintendo 64, so if you want to go ahead and give Sony credit for that one, I guess go ahead, even though they both launched on day one with the grips on their controllers... But if you look at the basic layout of a PlayStation controller, it's essentially a Super Nintendo controller with the names of the buttons changed and the addition of the grips. I think uh, over the years, people have maybe forgotten, uh, since we've been so used to PlayStation controllers, like most other controllers, having analog sticks and all these other things added to them, um, may forget that the original PlayStation controller did not have any analog sticks at all. It was just the D-pad on the left four face buttons on the right, although they weren't called ABX and Y on a PlayStation. They had two menu buttons in the middle, and I don't remember what they were called. They probably weren't start and select. People sometimes change that. And it had uh, the shoulder buttons, just like the Super Nintendo controller. So it's the same basic Super Nintendo layout, just updated a bit. Nintendo 64, though, continued to make further Nintendo contributions to what became today's game controllers. First, the Nintendo 64 controller launched with an analog stick on day one. Now remember, the PlayStation controller did not have analog control at first. This was a time of transition from the traditional older 2D, uh, often side-scrolling platformer type games to more 3D worlds. And there was some experimentation with how to best do that. And Nintendo seemed to have the foresight to add an analog stick, figuring that a four-directional D-pad wasn't going to be sufficient for that. Now, at that point, we did not have a right analog stick yet. Nintendo had four C buttons, uh, I guess you could say C for camera, uh, that controlled the camera from four buttons on the right-hand side of the controller. Sony uh, then later revamped their PlayStation controller to the dual analog controller, whereby they added two analog sticks to the controller. Now, they didn't rearrange nothing. They just kind of lazily tacked them on off to the side. In this case, the bottom center of the controller. And to this day, I hate that layout. You should never, in my opinion, have to reach to the bottom center of the controller for your primary means of control. But that's what they did. Now, bear in mind, an analog stick is not the same as the old joysticks that we had decades earlier. Uh, an analog stick isn't just a few basic directions and that's it. It's a full 360 degrees. It can you know, read if you're pushing it at like 1 o'clock or 5 o'clock or... You know, like a whole range of different directions. And the analog sticks that we have today also register how far you're pressing. If you're pressing a little bit in this direction or a lot in this direction. Whereas the old joysticks were more basic, almost like a D-pad, except sticking up out of your controller. So Nintendo 64 added an analog stick, and we're using analog sticks decades later to this day. Another contribution that came from the Nintendo 64 controller was Rumble. I think that's something that we take for granted today and don't really give much thought to. You play a game and your controller jiggles a little bit in this way or that, depending on what's going on. And that goes back to the Nintendo 64's Rumble Pack. Again, the PlayStation controller did not originally have any sort of force feedback or rumble. And even Nintendo 64 launched without rumble. That was an add-on to the controller added later. When it first came out, people kind of mocked the Rumble pack, laughed at it. it as like a cheap, silly gimmick. It'll never catch on. But it did, didn't it? Now, every controller pretty much has Rumble built into it. And pretty much every game on game consoles utilizes it in some way. Sony's seen this after making fun of it. All the fans making fun of it decide like, hey, you know what? That's actually pretty cool. Let's add that. To our controller so again they revamped their controller this time into dual shock. So not only do we owe the basic layout of every video game controller pretty much to Nintendo but also the addition of the analog sticks and rumble to Nintendo. Okay well that's cool but what about wireless controllers? Well remembering back when I talked about things that Nintendo dabbled with way back in the 80s that maybe the technology wasn't quite ready for? One of the things that they dabbled with, at least in Japan, on the Famicom, was wireless controllers. To my knowledge, that never really left Japan. And my understanding was the technology just wasn't quite capable of keeping up with it. It wasn't very, it didn't work right. But it was something Nintendo dabbled with. They dabbled with an awful lot of things, actually. Uh, Today, game consoles have online networks. You know, like on Xbox, there's Xbox Live, and people love to do the multiplayer stuff on there. Nintendo dabbled with uh, getting their game console on the internet, again, back in the 80s, all the way back to the uh, original Famicom. Uh, From what I've gathered, from what I've read uh, years ago, the world's largest online network at that time was on the Famicom in Japan that was back before everybody had a home computer and everybody's computers were online everybody was on the internet on Facebook and everything now something else we do today that we weren't able to do some decades back is wear headphones we plug into our controller so we can talk to other players through a microphone and hear through um you know the headset but if you go back again to the famicom way back in the 80s Uh, their controller, at least the second controller, not the first one, had a microphone built into it. So instead of like the start and select button, you had a microphone. Now again, that never, to my knowledge, ever um, left Japan. And I don't think there was a lot of support for it. But nevertheless, that was one of the things that Nintendo dabbled with way back in the 80s on the Famicom. Alright, Iceman. So we owe the current existence of video games to Nintendo. And, pretty much everything about video game controllers we owe Nintendo thanks for. Is that it? Can we move on now? Well, no, not exactly. Whenever we play video games, there are certain things we instinctively do. Our instincts kick in and make certain presumptions about the game and how stuff would work in the game. If I sit you down in front of a video game that you've never seen or heard of before, you know know absolutely nothing about it, I put a controller in your hand, so like, alright, Uh, have at it figure it out you'll quickly start making inferences based on what you see and hear in the game about what kind of a game it is and once you get start getting an idea for what kind of a game uh, style of game it is there's things you're instinctively going to expect to be able to do certain buttons you expect will probably do certain things if it's a game where you have a character that walks around in a 3d environment whether it's an action platformer kind of thing like Mario or a first-person shooter, more like, say, Call of Duty or Halo, um, you're probably going to automatically expect that the left analog stick is going to walk your character around and the right analog stick is probably going to turn the camera around, aim your view around. Uh, There's a very good chance the A button might make you jump. Uh, If it's a game with combat, with weapons, there's a very good chance that uh, the R Trigger uh, might do some kind of an attack, whether it's shooting a gun or swinging a sword. Certain things we're going to try out immediately, just automatically by instinct, based on our past experiences with video games. If you're coming up to some kind of a wall, a cliff, or something, and... Part of it doesn't visually match the rest of it. What are we going to think? We're going to think, well, we could probably destroy that in some way. There might be some kind of like a hidden treasure we can collect behind that, or destroying that might open up a new route to some new area. I remember a while back reading an article. Uh, this guy, I think it was his wife or girlfriend maybe, was uh, he was going to introduce her to video games. She'd never dabbled with them or watched them or anything before goes into a completely blind, no experience whatsoever, and certain things that we would automatically expect or try or assume are completely alien to her. And just the basic functions that we would just, our instincts would kick in automatically start hitting buttons trying to see if those things work, she never even thought of those things. Where does all this stuff come from? I mean, is there somebody, some official organization out there that just comes up with a rule book, well this is the basics to have, video games work? No. But somebody created a game that served as a sort of a prototype that other people followed off of and uh, uh, pulled inspiration from for developing their subsequent games. Even if they were totally unrelated games, they tended to look back at a game that served as a prototype or an archetype. And those early games decided how we would play, and subsequent games just kind of followed suit. And here again, we get into Nintendo's huge influence on the industry as a whole, because over the decades, they have produced games that influenced entire genres of games, um, whether it was basic uh, concepts of how a game should function, or how a character should behave, how the character should control, um, sometimes entire genres or subgenres, I guess I should say, of video games owe everything to a game that was uh, popularized on Nintendo. A huge early influence was Super Mario Bros. Countless side scrolling platformers to follow took inspiration from basic concepts of gameplay from Super Mario Bros. Whether it was the behaviors of the character, how you controlled them through the environments, or how the game levels should be laid out, or whatever, um, Super Mario Bros. was massively influential on generations of games to follow. Another early Nintendo hit, Metroid, was so influential that it actually has a subgenre basically named after it. The names of Castlevania and Metroid were put together to make the subgenre Metroidvania. Metroidvania refers to a style of action game with a nonlinear gameplay whereby players can wander around the game world however they please, but progress is limited um, restricted to uh, acquiring certain items to advance. They tend to require an awful lot of exploration and backtracking. Another early Nintendo title on the Nintendo Entertainment System, The Legend of Zelda, is a hit, highly respected franchise, highly acclaimed, uh, tremendous amount of awards over the years, a lot of Game of the Year uh, nominations and Game of the Year wins. So many different games that followed tried to be like The Legend of Zelda. An early Super Nintendo title, Super Mario Kart, still to this day continues to see Mario Kart clones. Games that take obvious inspiration from Mario Kart tend to be known as kart racers even if they aren't technically in any sort of like a go kart. But the term kart racer comes from the game that it took inspiration from, Mario Kart. There's been so many dozens of Mario Kart imitators over the years and often with Characters from other established franchises trying their hand at the Mario Kart magic, um, Diddy Kong racing, uh, Crash Bandicoots had racing games, uh, Nickelodeon's had kart racers. Uh, more recently, I remember seeing a Final Fantasy one. So many imitators, but nobody has been able to capture the magic quite the same of Mario Kart. Once we start getting into the Nintendo 64 and PlayStation generation, we were really transitioning into a new period of a new type of gaming, going from the older 2D games into completely 3D game worlds with 3D gameplay, 3D environments. Um, yes, yeah, some games had dabbled with uh, fake 2D before, but this is the first time it was really for real, and pretty much every game... And here, Super Mario 64 became the prototype. It really showed gamers and game developers alike how to correctly do uh, 3D gameplay in a 3D world. And for years to follow, many game developers in uh, interviews would refer back to Mario 64 as their inspiration for how the characters should be moving around in the environments, how to control the camera, how to lay out your game worlds, how the gameplay should feel. You know, alternatively, the nearest imitation at the time was Crash Bandicoot on PlayStation. I'm sure there's PlayStation fanboys that like to pretend that that was somehow really influential and no. Nobody ever refers back to Crash Bandicoot as an inspiration for anything that they ever did. It was Mario 64 that inspired everything that followed. Then there's Pokemon. Now, technically, Nintendo didn't directly create Pokemon. They, they were the, an early publisher. Pokemon was initially developed by Game Freak and then published by Nintendo. Uh, later, both companies merged together to form the Pokemon Company. Pokemon was, and still to this day, is a huge hit franchise. It's just everywhere. You can't really go anywhere without running into Pokemon in some way, shape, or form. Uh, Not just video gaming, but toys and clothing. It was on um, plates. It was on your television, on a a cartoon series. It was on the big screen at the movie theater. It's on people's uh, phones. I mean, I know grown adults... That never played a Pokemon game in their life, never watched the cartoons, never had any shred of interest in Pokemon. They were playing Pokemon Go on their phone at work. Uh, Pokemon inspired knockoffs, like uh, off the top of my head, Digimon. I've seen toy lines that look like they took clear inspiration from Pokemon toys. Oh crap, Uh, where else to go? I mean, there's so many things that um, Nintendo has produced that is still inspiring everybody to this day. And I'm afraid of missing something. And then publishing this and, oh crap, I, uh, I forgot this and I forgot this. Uh, more things are springing to mind. Uh, I guess let's not forget about Super Smash Brothers, which uh, debuted on the Nintendo 64. And uh, several game generations later, we still see the f- series going on and being insanely popular. The idea, anyways, of Smash Brothers is popular even with people that don't play Nintendo Every once in a while on message boards, uh, whether it's a PlayStation or an Xbox community, I see people talking about, uh, fantasizing about what kind of uh, Smash Brothers clone that they would love to see with uh, PlayStation franchises or Xbox um, game characters like Halo. And every now and then I see an actual game come out that is clearly inspired by the gameplay and the, the general concept of Smash Brothers. And if you're not aware of Smash Brothers, what it is, it's a fighting game that is simple to pick up. It doesn't have really complicated special moves, like, say, Mortal Kombat. There's no up, down, forward, back, you know, 15 different buttons to, pr- to throw a fireball. You know, you press down and A, or uh, right and B, or whatever, and you do moves. It's simple to pick up and play. But there's an awful lot of depth and complexity to it. Uh, so there's also room to be uh, a master as well. But I think part of the appeal of Smash Brothers, though is that it has all these iconic characters from all these beloved franchise, totally unrelated franchises, all thrown together in one game, fighting against each other. And it's not just the characters, it's uh, the levels that you fight on, the environments are based on levels... Uh, they, they take inspiration from video game settings. Uh, there's always different random weapons that will appear in stages you can use against each other. And those are borrowed from different games. There's just It's so much nostalgia um, packed into one place. It's just a happy, like if you're a video gamer, it's just overwhelming all the nostalgia that's being poured on you. And that is something that's really difficult for a non-Nintendo platform to replicate. Because Nintendo's got several decades of nostalgia and uh, properties that are known even outside of the Nintendo community or even by people that don't play video games. Uh, Then there's Mario Party. uh, Another franchise that uh, saw its debut on Nintendo 64. And it is, as the name implies, like um, a party type game where up to four players can play together in... um, Kind of like it's kind of like a, a video game board game. You have dice that you roll and you move your characters around a um, a virtual uh, game board, um, and then each round ends with some kind of a mini game pitting uh, players against each other, and all the mini games are just a, a wide variety of wacky stuff and you know really entertaining. So even if you're somebody that Never touches Nintendo game consoles, never plays a Nintendo game at all. Maybe you're a die-hard Sony fan, maybe you're a die-hard Xbox fan. The fact that you're playing a video game at all, a lot of the gameplay elements in the games that you're playing, or even the controller that you're playing it on, all owes thanks back to Nintendo. Their significance and influence on the industry is completely without rival. In more recent generations, the other guys, Xbox and PlayStation, have had uh, more powerful hardware than what Nintendo has been putting out. And Sony, uh, PlayStation in particular, has had bigger sales than Nintendo has. But nobody has had bigger influence than Nintendo has.